are listening to The Truth Tank, and I'm your host, The Tank. If this is your first time listening to The Truth Tank, a big welcome, and if you're a return listener, welcome back. If you're enjoying The Truth Tank, there's a couple of things you can do. Hit the like button on YouTube, follow The Truth Tank on Facebook and Instagram, download and review the show on your preferred podcast player that helps the show grow. Alright, so the first episode recorded for the new year. It's well into 2023 now. At the time of recording, it's a year since the conflict in Ukraine started. It's already been a year. It's hard to believe. There may be a little background noise on this episode. It is hot as fuck where I am. It's about 100 and something degrees. I'm currently recording in a room with no airflow or fan. So if you do hear a little background noise, I'll try to cut out as much as I can. You know I've succumbed to the heat and I've had to turn on the fan. Fucking sweating like a pig already, but I shall press on. On this episode, we're going to be having a look at James Cameron's Avatar. We're going to be having a look at the original film and some of the technical challenges faced during production and post-production, the background to the story, the advances in motion capture and 3D technology that made his vision come to life, and the hurdles he had to overcome to get the film financed. I'll then be doing a review of Avatar 2 The Way of Water, the highly anticipated sequel. Without further ado, let's get into tonight's show. This is episode 46 of The Truth Tank, Avatar, History, and The Way of Water Review, part 1. So it kind of goes without saying, the hype and build-up around Avatar 2 and the anticipation for it was unlike anything we've seen in recent film history. There have been few films, I think, ever made besides Star Wars that have been so highly anticipated. It's a long wait between sequels, especially by today's standards. Today's sequels, the average wait time is about two to three years. Marvel movies are a great example of this. There's, what, three to four that come out every year. And they're all a sequel to a sequel or a, the next chapter in the MCU. So 13 years is a very long time to wait for the second installment of Avatar. There's a lot of factors that went into that. Difficulty writing, coming up with and expanding the world of Pandora. A lot was riding on the success of Avatar The Way of Water. It had to break about two billion to break even. The film's been out for a couple of months now. It's made a lot of money. It's been pretty well praised by critics and fans. James Cameron said he now plans to make seven to ten possible Avatar films, depending on how successful the other sequels are and the interest of the film. So I like the first film. That was produced by 20th Century Fox. That evil little mouse has had to get his claws on the franchise of Avatar. Disney brought the rights to 20th Century Fox, which obviously includes Avatar and its many sequels. So will Disney be the downfall of Avatar? Given their track record, which hasn't been very good. I will say one thing for Disney, they probably did drum up a lot of 
hype for this movie. They they know what they're doing when it comes to marketing. They pumped a lot of money into the advertising campaign for Avatar 2. They reminded you that Avatar was still around. They released it on streaming services. They've had a massive advertising campaign. They've got Pandora Land at Disneyland just to get you interested that little bit further. They've also been very clever in the marketing using the world of Pandora as a marketing tagline on merchandise. They want you to go deeper into that world and they're trying to build that myth around it like they do with a lot of their films. There's the Avatar Flight to Passage 3D Flight Simulator and Pandora World of Avatar, which is a 12-acre attraction at Disneyland. That opened in 2017. So Disney was obviously playing the long game in terms of advertisement. There's also the Navi River Journey, which also opened in 2017. But by far, most of the talk around Avatar has been the astronomical cost of the film, which by today's standards probably isn't that over the top considering an average blockbuster film costs about $250 million these days. It seems like every Marvel movie is about $250 million. It doesn't seem possible to make a big film with lots of special effects for under that. Thor Love and Thunder, which they probably really should have called that film Thor Love and Blunder, somehow cost $250 million. I scratched my head at how that's possible, given how fucking shit that film was. It's got a lot of special effects, but it wasn't much different to the average Marvel movie these days. You'd think visual effects and computer technology would make it cheaper to make these huge films now, especially processing the amounts of special effects, but I guess there's so many special effects you need 10 companies to do one film as opposed to 20 years ago when you needed one or two. Same is kind of true for video games. The price of the games, well, for a new PlayStation 4 game is probably cheaper than it was when brand new PlayStation 3 games came out, but at the same time a PlayStation 3 game arrived in the store finished. It wasn't 75% done and you didn't have to download the rest of it when you got home. Which is the case for most of the Call of Duty games. You you get it home, put it in the console, and it takes another two days to download the single player and multiplayer campaigns before you can even play it. Most of those launch day titles are like what around the $70 mark. Sometimes cheaper, sometimes more expensive. But then they cost you time when you go to try to play them. And that's the argument you hear a lot with movies now is that this movie is going to cost a lot of money. And that's surrounded the production of the first Avatar and the second one and the future sequels. Is that this film is going to cost a lot of money, therefore it might be a dodgy investment. I've heard story after story about how much this movie costs and how much the future sequels are going to cost. And it needs to make X amount of dollars to break even and be a commercial success. Which is annoying when you think about it because you know art takes money. Art costs money, but it also makes money. Avatar 2 is one part in a series of films. It's going to cost money, but it's also going to make money. The more tech involved, the more costs. Or like I just mentioned, that is what video game companies and tech companies want everyone to believe. I understand that there are research and development costs. You know, iPhones are a lot more than they used to be. They're bigger, they use better materials, there's more technology in them. But there's also a gigantic markup. So it was the original iPhone was like 
what, 600 bucks or something, 700 bucks, and it went up to about 900. Now you can get them for, now you can get a top of the line iPhone for a fraction under three grand. So even with inflation and all that stuff and cost of development, I mean, really the phone itself hasn't changed. It's still basically the same shape. It's just a bit bigger or wider. Yes, there's a better hard drive, more processing. You can't tell me they're spending a lot of money making those chips because if Corona's taught us anything, the global supply chain for these chips that we're using everything came out of the one factory in China. These companies are probably paying 30 to 50 cents per unit to have these things produced. And they seem to be a pretty vital part of mobile phone production, car production. They were used in PlayStations and various other things. If you want to keep raising the bar in terms of what is artistically possible, if you want to push the frontier of the film experience, you have to spend money. And in most cases, you have to spend more money than the last film or films 10 years ago. So what is the big deal about the cost? Is the media getting fixated on this single point and is trying to hammer it into the ground like they do with a lot of things these days? And are they simply just missing the bigger picture in the process of modern filmmaking, such as special effects costs, production, new technology, trial and error costs, and the safety and challenge of working on a film like Avatar that involves actors spending time in water, especially underwater, these are factors that all have to be considered when you're making a film like The Way of Water. There's obviously the trial and error. You've got to build tanks. You've got to make sure it's safe. You don't want to drown all your actors because that's not going to look very good. So when you hear reports like that from news sources, is it 100% true? Or are they just trying to drum up this negative press about a film? The same way you see on the news every fucking morning and every night, there'll be a heat wave and they'll come up with some catchphrase for it for this week. Because last week we were in a heat wave, and it was over a couple of days, over 30-something degrees. You'll have to Google that for a Fahrenheit translation. I take this stuff with a fucking grain of salt. So digging deeper into this, there's an article on Variety.com titled, Avatar 2 is so expensive it must become the fourth or fifth highest grossing film in history just to break even. It's by Zach Saf. The article's from November 21, 2022. And that was obviously written before the film came out. How expensive is Avatar The Way of Water? Early reports have claimed the production budget alone was in the 250 million range. But director James Cameron isn't willing to give a hard number just yet. You know, wonder why. The only answer Cameron would give about the sequel's budget when asked by GQ magazine was the following. Very fucking expensive. That's a pretty good answer. Because I seriously doubt that 250 million would be the final number number for Avatar 2. It's probably closer to three. Then again, like it seems like most of the Lucasfilm movies now are in like the 260 to 270 range, given all the fuck ups that happen over there and all the reshoots. And going back to the Indiana Jones 5 and the Dial of Destiny episodes I did. The budget for Indiana Jones 5 has been completely blown out. It's now the first most expensive movie ever made by Lucasfilm. The budget for The Dial of Destiny is $294.7 million. All the reshoots and controversies over pretty bad test screenings have all come back to bite them. 
they're re-editing the film, reshooting the ending, and there's, and there's rumors there's going to be further reshoots, which probably means they're going to reshoot some of the film. And this is only a couple of months out from the release date of June 30th. You know, it's already nearly the end of February at time of recording. Second most expensive was Solo, a Star Wars story, $275 million, no surprises there. Followed by Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, $275 million. The Last Jedi, 262, The Force Awakens, 259, Rogue One, 248, and Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull at 233 million. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of money. And these, like, Solo wasn't a good film. It was, as I keep referring to it, as Frozen Pizza. All the reshoots in that blew out the budget. And Avatar was obviously made a lot more efficiently by someone who actually knew what they were doing. And a producer that didn't want to subvert the story for the sake of political correctness. Cameron apparently told Disney and 20th Century Studios executives that his sequel budget was so high it represented, this is a quote, the worst business case in movie history. According to the director's estimates, you have to be the third or fourth highest grossing film in history. That's your threshold. That's your break even. Yeah, no pressure. On the current chart of highest grossing movies worldwide, Unadjusted for inflation, Cameron's original 2009 Avatar ranks at the top with $2.9 billion. Disney's Avengers Endgame is the second position with $2.7 million, while Cameron's Titanic remains in third slot with $2.1 billion. That means, according to Cameron, that if Avatar The Way of Water wants to break even, it'll need to overtake either Star Wars The Force Awakens $2.7 billion or Avengers Infinity War $2.5 in the fourth or film slots respectively. That really does say a lot about the money Titanic made. That came out, what, 25 years ago now, 97. This is when cinema tickets were still relatively pretty cheap, around the 10 or so dollar mark. There was no 3D. It didn't cost you 25 bucks to go to, go to the movies. So that really shows you how many times people went to see that movie. I mean, it was on, I think it was in the cinema for like two years. When it first came out, it was in the cinema for a while. Then it won all the Academy Awards and they re-released it for another eight months or so. It seemed like that movie was in cinemas for like two and a half years before it finally exited. And it's come back ten years ago for the 100th anniversary of the Titanic. Well, more than ten years now, in 2011. I remember seeing that again in the cinema in 3D. And it came out recently for the 25th anniversary so it's theatrical revenue is still going up. Star Wars The Force Awakens was in 3D. I can't remember if Avengers Infinity War was 3D, but that movie was one of the fastest grossing billion or $2 billion movies ever. Obviously, like it had, what, 20 films, 10 years of build-up before it got there. Only five movies have ever crossed the $2 billion mark worldwide. Unadjusted for inflation, while the pandemic has affected movie-going films like Spider-Man No Way Home... 1.9 billion. Oh, it didn't quite get the 2 billion. And Top Gun Maverick, 1.4 billion. Have managed to turn huge profits, so there's hope for the way of water. The original Avatar grossed 785 million domestically and sits at number 4 on the all time US box office chart. Unadjusted for inflation. In the fifth slot is Top Gun Maverick, with 716 million domestically. Interesting. Avatar The Way of Water opens in theaters December 16. Like I mentioned, the movie's been out for a couple of months. So the box office 
totals have been counted and have stacked up. So did James Cameron reach his target of $2 billion, or did he fall short? So as of a couple of hours ago, there's a couple of articles talking about the box office success of The Way of Water, one of which by deadline. James Cameron beats his own box office records as Avatar The Way of Water pulls ahead of Titanic. So this is the from The Hollywood Reporter. Box office milestone Avatar 2 sinks Titanic to rank as number three pick of all time. Interesting. By, it's by Pamela McClintock, February 19, 2023. The article was posted four hours ago, so this is the most current at time of recording. Update on the Avatar 2 box office. Its official Avatar The Way of Water has edged out Titanic at the global box office with 2.243 billion in global ticket sales to become the number three movie of all time, not adjusted for inflation. James Cameron, who directed both films, lays claim to three of the four top grossing movies in history. Go, James Cameron. Titanic, which amassed 2.194 billion in the worldwide ticket sales before a global 3D re-release earlier this month, now stands at 2.242 billion. Huh, interesting. So it's made a few million more on re-release. The all-time list is topped by Cameron's original Avatar, 2.92 billion, followed by the Russo Brothers' Avengers Endgame, 2.79 billion. Avatar 2's domestic gross is 657 million, putting it at number 9 on the all-time roster. It's still behind Titanic, 672.2 million in North America. Overseas, The Way of Water has amassed a massive 1.58 billion. The third best showing ever at the international box office behind Avatar and Endgame. The Way of Water isn't expected to catch up with Marvel's Endgame or the first Avatar released in 2009. It's an unusual slowdown. The 3D release of 97's Titanic went up against Avatar The Way of Water over Super Bowl weekend and in advance of Valentine's Day. It's probably a very poor choice of schedule. It should have come out this weekend after the Super Bowl and Valentine's Day. It's a very busy couple of weeks, so probably potentially could have made even more if the scheduling was better. And even if Avatar 2 has beaten Titanic, the 97 film has been showing remarkable staying power. Yeah, it's got 25 years of history now. Interesting. So he's beat his own record. He's beat his own other film, and he's got third place. What did he say? He had to get the fifth or fourth place to break even, and I think he's well and truly broken even. So this brings up the lingering question with all the talk about marketing, production technology and release costs of films now and how they've been blown out to these eye-watering sums of money. It seems you know an average blockbuster film is 200 million plus compared to 20 years ago when it was like 150 or 100 million. Films are getting more expensive. So this brings up a big question. What is the future going to look like for box office earnings? And are studios, producers, and filmmakers being too greedy or just expecting too much in box office returns now? Cinema earnings have streaming services to contend with. When Avatar was released back in 2009, there were no streaming services. There were still video shops. Blu-ray and DVD sales have undoubtedly taken a hit in recent years thanks to the rise of streaming services. Lots of people don't see the point in buying a film if you can just stream it. I personally like to buy the films I like. I like to have a hard copy. I like looking at the covers. I like owning the film that I like. And I buy films that I haven't seen if they're on sale. I don't really care. I'm a 
you know, movie nerd. I love movies, so if I watch it and it's not good, I'll just go resell it or donate it or give it to someone else. If you're only paying eight to you know fifteen bucks for a movie, to even twenty bucks now for a movie, that's you know really relatively the same price as seeing it as seeing it in the cinema, and I get to take it home and keep it and watch it whenever I like. So. It's not a big a gamble as it used to be. I'm not paying $30 for brand new Blu-rays anymore. I always wait for the for a sale or I'll you know, buy them on eBay really cheap when they come out. So it's not a huge gamble anymore. If you know you spend $17 on the latest superhero movie and it turns out to be trash, you just resell it back on eBay. So are these companies just being unrealistic? Are they not accounting for downloads on streaming services? Downloads equals dollars for Netflix. I mean, Netflix produces a hell of a lot of movies, some of which make it to the theaters, others are just plain garbage. But are the big film studios' mentality back in the 1990s, when it was all about gigantic box office takings, because I don't think they're going to get the money that they used to. Like I said, streaming services are here to stay, they're too prevalent, they're taking a chunk of the market. So are video games, they're more in-depth and interactive than they've ever been. You can get 100, 300 hours out of a game these days as opposed to an hour and a half, two hours. They're much better value by comparison, even if they do cost more. It's more entertainment value. Then you've got the endless supply of TV shows. There's new TV shows with big A-list Hollywood stars in it that are produced every month now. Some say it's the golden age of TV. I'm not quite sure I agree with that because there's a lot of trash out there. But big shows like The Mandalorian, Game of Thrones, they weren't around 10 to 12 years ago. TV shows have movie budgets now. Some single episodes of shows can cost as much, if not more, than independent films. Which is good because you can, like a show like Game of Thrones, you can have a big expansive story that takes place over, you know, seven or eight seasons as opposed to 90 to two out, 90 minutes to two hours. You know, Star Wars fans have what, like five or six shows at the moment and more coming. There's endless Star Wars stories being produced. Some of them are pretty good, some of them are crap, but they've got production value. You know, They're not the cheesy, very cheaply made movie TV show tie-ins like we used to see back in the 90s and the 80s. The Star Trek movies were good, but some of the TV shows were a little on the cheap side. Compared with the Star Trek shows that are made now, they slot straight in with some of the movies. The special effects are pretty good. So are the makeup and the stories. They're huge productions. They have big budgets. And they have big planned out stories. And look at the original Star Wars TV shows. They were pretty corny. The Ewoks spin-off and some of those animated shows. They were made very cheap. Then came Clone Wars, which is a masterpiece in its own right. And now it's finally gone into live action. And yeah, it's pretty good. And you mean, like the production value of The Mandalorian, it's pretty impressive. The special effects are just as good as the movies. There's a lot of time and care that's been spent on them. The box office has movie quality shows to contend with, as well as streaming services and video games. Avatar 2 is also coming out at a very turbulent time in cinema history. It's right after a global pandemic. People have been too scared to go out. They've been too scared to go to the movies for the last two years because the news and the government has scared the living shit out of everyone. Lots of movie theaters were closed for a year, a year and a half. They faced huge downturns during the pandemic. 
People were too scared to sit in a cinema with a bunch of strangers. Every time someone would cough, people would start to panic. Then there's movie studios delaying the release of big blockbuster films like James Bond, No Time to Die, and June, Top Gun Maverick for years in some case. I think June was delayed for a year and a half or two years. The King's Man was, I think, the most delayed movie. During the pandemic, No Time to Die got pushed back twice. So did Top Gun Maverick. They got pushed back a few times. And other films just went straight to streaming services, bypassing the theatre altogether because the studios were desperate and panicky. And rather than wait, they just decided to release them straight to streaming services. Which was annoying because a lot of those films were probably worth seeing in the theatres. But some of those films at the same time, they may not have fared as well if they were released during the pandemic. On one hand, they would have lost money being released during a pandemic. So maybe the studios thought it was a better option releasing them on a streaming service and getting more downloads. At the same time, their bigger competition, such as No Time to Die or Top Gun Maverick, weren't coming out, which gave them free reign of the box office, which also which may or may not have increased revenue. It's very hard to tell, but at least you would have got a theatrical release. Then you can always you can always come out on a streaming service a month or two after a theatrical release. So it's a very weird and turbulent time, and thank fuck it's over because I hated the movies being closed. That's the worst part of the lockdown by far. I didn't mind not going out. It was a good excuse not to do anything social. I could just focus on podcasting and other ventures. So that was good in those respects. It gave you time to work on projects you really wanted to. But my favourite social activity is going to the movies. So that did suck. I don't want to see movie theatres close because they've gone out of business, like, like so many restaurants and places in the hospitality industry. The other big issue with modern films and box office takings is there's simply just a lack of good films now. There's too many films to choose from. You have... Like I said, streaming services. Every month there's an entire catalogue of new TV shows and movies to choose from. You know, So why go out and spend money on a middle-of-the-road film that may or may not be good? I mean, like I said, it's, it's 20 bucks for a f- movie ticket now, $20 plus in most cases. So going to the movies, especially if you're taking a family to the movies, is a fucking expensive venture now. It can cost you up to 100 bucks if you're taking a family especially in 3D, and it looks like they're trying to bring 3D back into theatres. The new Ant-Man movie is in 3D. Marvel movies were one of the last holdouts when it came to 3D movies. They tried to milk every drop out of it. It kind of fizzled out after about 2015 with Star Wars, and now it's slowly being revived with, obviously, Avatar, The Way of Water. But i got a feeling that most of the Marvel movies and superhero movies that come out this year are all probably going to be 3D. But there is a lack of good films. A lot of movies that come out now, I want to see, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I want to pay good money to go see that, especially if it's a you know, 89 or 90, 95-minute movie. You're just not getting your money's worth anymore. I'd rather wait for it to come out on Netflix, so that way, if you do watch it, it's like, well, I'm only paying you know, 15 bucks a month, and that's just one bad movie out of a lot of movies that are coming out. Like, I want to see Cocaine Bear, but at the same time, it's like it's directed by Elizabeth Banks. It's probably not going to be that good. It is Ray Liotta's last film. It does look interesting. But it's probably going to be an average 90-minute movie. Same with Violet Night. It looked good. But do I really want to pay $22 to go see it? Or is that the type of movie that is better suited for a Friday night Netflix film? 
So, you know, maybe if studios did put more time and care into making great films rather than just good, mediocre popcorn films that just fill the void in between big releases, I think more people would be willing to go to the theatre again and spend money. Because it's not so much a lack of people not wanting to go to the movies, it's just a lack of good things to go see at the movies. And Avatar 2 and Top Gun Maverick are both perfect examples of that. If you put time and care and passion into making these big spectacle films, people will pay money to come and see them. Top Gun Maverick is still in some theatres. It's definitely a movie you want to see in the movies as opposed to just seeing it on a TV. Despite how big televisions have become, it's still whether you've seen it on the big screen. And the other big issue with that is there's two types of movies that are released now. Gigantic blockbusters, which every second blockbuster film these days is a superhero movie. The other films that are released are usually smaller independent movies, mainly kitchen sink dramas, Oscar bait movies that are boring as fuck and you wouldn't want to spend money on them anyway. There's not a lot of in-between. I mean, there are those in-between kind of action movies that come out, but they're usually not worth paying more than about 10 bucks to go see. Everything else is Marvel, with the occasional sprinkle of DC. The other big issue at the moment is the cost of living. Cost of living increases definitely aren't helping either. Everything has gone up from food, fuel, power, a lot of which have been blamed on the war. There are many factors playing into that. The war in Ukraine, pandemic hangover, greed by companies who are you know didn't make enough during COVID, who want to try and cash in now and get as much revenue as possible. So what do they do? They put prices of fuel up, and the knock-on effect of that is food goes up. Once one food item goes up, then all these companies are like, well, we can do the same thing and make money, so let's just put all the prices up. Blame it on this. We'll blame it on the war in Ukraine. Fuck the bottom-end consumer. The customer can pay for it, and they'll be none the wiser. Then there's the random weather events we have be having lately all around the world. Whether you believe in climate change or not, I don't think anyone can really deny just how random and severe the weather patterns have become lately. Even 10 years ago, I can't remember weather being this random or extreme. You get two freezing cold days, followed by a warmer day, or you get two ridiculously hot days, and then the next day is 20 degrees cooler. It makes no sense. I can never remember weather patterns like that. Call it a natural cycle of the world, or blame it on climate change. Whatever way you want to look at it, there's no denying that the weather has become increasingly random. There's also that looming black cloud of a recession that may or may not hit this year and all the other bullshit happening in society over the last couple of years. So people can be forgiven for not forking out 25 bucks for a 3D film, which is definitely a luxury. It's become increasingly more of a luxury at the moment, especially when you can't put food on the table. When there are more important things to worry about, like eating and keeping the lights on, going to the theatre doesn't rank as a high priority. This isn't just isolated to a single country, this is a very big global concern. Avatar 2 can have an extended release, there isn't much else out, out at the moment. or well, There is a lot, out, a lot out at the moment, but there's not a lot you actually want to go pay to see, especially when it's a gigantic visual effects extravaganza like The Way of Water. You know, James Cameron should stop panicking, he wants people to spend the extra for the 3D, which wasn't really that good to see in the movies. I thought the 3D in the first Avatar was much better, but more on that later. You know, maybe if 3D was a little cheaper or subsidized somehow by film studios, 
mm, you know, more people would probably go see it. The release of Avatar 2 also came at a very bad time. It was released at the end of the year after two years of ongoing lockdowns and price increases right before Christmas. But it seems like all his worrying was for nothing. He got the fourth highest grossing film of all time spot. He broke even and everything is right. Studios have to accept that this is the future of movies and box office earnings now. Streaming has taken a chunk of that revenue and there's no going back. Lazy fucks will always choose to stay in and watch Netflix. Lower than projected earnings are more than likely going to be the future of box office takings. And I think film studios really need to get used to that fact and adjust their business models rather than live in the past and blame the bottom end consumer because we've seen this argument many, many times before. Blockbuster didn't want to invest in streaming services when they could have. They always thought people were going to come in and spend an hour browsing the shelves for a film to watch, grab a bag of popcorn and spend 28 bucks on two new releases that have to be rewound and brought back by a close of business the following day. Where for a lesser price, you can get an ongoing subscription with new content every month and you don't have to leave your house. I know which one I'd choose. This is kind of the same thing. Studios are crying about this old business model when they really need to accept that the world has moved on since then and they need to adjust the business model so they don't become the next blockbuster. Now, whether that is studios releasing their own streaming services like Paramount and pumping out their own content straight to streaming services, but that would probably destroy the theatre industry or maybe they just have a reserve amount of money that they put into bigger blockbuster films like Top Gun Mavericks and No Time to Die and Star Wars and they release the middle of the road, their more mediocre titles straight to streaming services. But that also means that there needs to be content to fill the gaps in between big releases. Or do bigger movies stay in the cinema for five to six months now? And that probably affects releases and contracts and everything. But also most of the film studios have all sold their rights to Disney or have got deals with Netflix. So that probably makes things a little hard as well. These studios need to adapt or die. Whining about projected earnings and losses when you're using the same old business model to run a studio in the modern day isn't very smart. I found an article that goes into a bit more depth on why Avatar needs to make so much money back. It's on time.com. It's entitled How Much Avatar, The Way of Water Cost, and How Much It Needs to Make by Moses Mendez II. After 13 years of waiting, Audiences are finally able to see what all the fuss surrounding James Cameron's Avatar The Way of Water is about. The big budget film hit theatres globally on December 16, and with its gigantic price tag, it has to become one of the highest grossing movies of all time to break even, and to justify its hefty budget for the many sequels slated to follow. There's certainly a fair share of critics whose reviews were not exactly glowing. When the embargo lifted earlier this week, the plot of The Way of Water is designed to seem engagingly complex. But there's nothing about it that's truly surprising or, or particularly moving, time critic Stephanie Zacharick writes. Even though Cameron heaps the faux spiritual mumbo-jumbo high and tugs virently at the waterworks levers, the Daily Beast critic Nick Shager had similar feelings. Writing the movie felt forced and without a single memorable vision. And I disagree with both of them, but more on that later. But if the current rating of 80% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes is any indication, 
a majority ultimately did enjoy the sequel for the visual spectacle that it is. And how do they know that they read every review and question every person that wrote a review and why they liked it? Some people might like the story. Cameron has raised not only the stakes of his effects artistry, but the choreographic flow of his staging, to the point of making the way of water like Avatar into the into the apotheosis of a must-see movie, Variety's chief film critic Owen Gleiberman wrote on his review. The movie's opening weekend performance offers some insight into its box office momentum as it fights to justify its enormous budget. In its first weekend, Avatar The Way of Water made $134 million in North America alone and $435 million globally. Variety reports, While those numbers seem impressive, they come in a bit south of the two recent Marvel blockbusters, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which opened with a global total of $442 million, and Spider-Man No Way Home, which grossed $600 million globally on its opening weekend. And it shows you how much those movies slow down after the first week or two. While we wait to find out, here's everything we know about the cost of the movie and how it needs to perform to recoup its budget. There is no publicly available definitive answer as to the exact dollar amount, but overall the film is reported to have cost Disney $350 million, according to Variety. Even with that big price tag, it's still not the most expensive movie ever made. That, that title belongs to Disney's The Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, which cost $379 million. When you look at that in comparison, it's kind of hard to believe that Pirates of the Caribbean cost more, and that was made a while ago on Stranger Tides. I don't think it was 3D. It m may have been, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't. Got a lot of special effects. It's a long movie. It's a big movie. But the original Avatar had a lot more visual effects in it than that did. Or maybe it's because of the physical props and building those ships and stuff. Would have been really expensive. Anyway, second place goes to Avengers Age of Ultron, interesting, which rang in $365 million. And third belongs to Avengers Endgame, costing Marvel, well, Disney, $356 million. Not a lot of surprises there, but they made their money back on all of those investments. So why is Avatar any different? Why is there this huge stigma over the cost of that? Clearly it's not the most expensive movie, but then again you don't really know if it is the most expensive or that $350 million price tag is accurate. It could be $400 million for all we know, which is a fucking lot of money for a movie. There are a multitude of reasons why it cost so much money and took so much time to make the second Avatar movie. The beauty of the film was made possible by the advanced motion capture technology that Cameron used to reproduce every fluid moment, movement and facial tick of his actors playing the V characters. Times Elena Dockettman writes, For the sequels, Cameron wanted to use the same motion capture technology for actors while they were submerged underwater, an unheard of feat that required years of engineering, a solution. Cameron also decided to film the second and third movies together, which took three years to complete. This on top of the time it took for post-production all adds to all adds up to a 13-year wait. So how much is Avatar 2 projected to make? Early projections for the opening weekend. Box office are showing that people are eager to return to Pandora after more than a decade away. According to Variety, the movie is projected to open to 150 million to 175 million across 4,100 theaters domestically, and Disney reported that the movie had already amassed 38 million in advanced ticket sales. That puts it ahead of early projections for Top Gun Maverick, which currently currently ranks as the most successful movie of the year. Avatar The Way of Water needs to make $1.49 billion to clinch the top spot for 2022. It would need to grow somewhere between 
billion and 2.5 billion to break even, which obviously we know it did. When the first Avatar opened in 2009, it made 77 million domestically and 2.92 billion worldwide after staying at the number one movie spot for seven consecutive weeks. It ultimately became the highest grossing movie of all time. The sequel is in a good position to make a solid chunk of its money back. Internationally, Avatar 2 could at least could add at least 250 million to 350 million over the weekend, which would put global ticket sales at 400 to 500 million. Variety reports. It also got the green light to premiere in China, which it's never, which is never a given for Hollywood movies, given the criteria they need to meet to be released there. And on the conservative side, Variety estimates that initial returns from Chinese cinemas could reach 100 million by Sunday, in addition to 22 million in advanced sales. They have to be pretty sensitive in trying to find Avatar somehow offensive, but I'm sure they could find something wrong with it. Why does the box office affect any planned sequels? During an interview with Total Film, Cameron said that the franchise will end with Avatar 3 if the second one underperforms at the box office. The market could be telling us we're done in three months, or we might be semi-done, meaning, okay, let's complete the story within movie three and not go on endlessly. If it's just not profitable, Cameron said. These movies are, in his own words, very fucking expensive. The reported combined budget for the next three movies is a whopping one billion with plans for as many as six or seven movies if there is demand for them. The next movie is planned for 2024, Avatar 4 is slated to be released in 2026, and Avatar 5 is set to be released in 2028. Interesting. Let's hope they all do well, because I want more Avatar movies. It's a colourful, interesting world. Maybe there's a couple of lessons that Marvel could learn. Do you just keep on making endless sequels for sequel's sake after they're becoming unprofitable? Or can you wrap the story up within the next couple of films, which they probably should have done a long time ago? But then again, Marvel and DC don't have James Cameron. They have a lot of those rented directors and writers, and that's a big problem with a lot of movies these days. You have writers and directors that are just there to get paid, do a job, then move on to the next project. James Cameron's an artist. He cares about his films. He's a perfectionist. He writes and directs and produces all of his films. It's the attention to quality that sets him apart. In my words, James Cameron is one of the best directors ever. It's his attention to detail and realism. Things feel lived in and realistic in his films, much the way the original Star Wars did. And he has a very unique ability to tell stories, particularly big stories, and put quality over quantity. I mean, he's one of the few directors that can make a sequel as good, if not better, than the original. Terminator 2 proved you can have a big, giant sequel and still have a small, intimate story revolving around a mother and son trying to escape a killer cyborg. When I was applying for film schools in uni and outside of uni, you have to go through a, the panel of tutors that run the courses. You have to have an interview with them. I remember having an interview with one at a university. It's a panel of three or four of them, and they ask you what type of films do you like. So I replied, I like big action films and dramas, war movies, sci-fi. I said, James Cameron's one of my favorite directors. And this 
long-haired, hippie burnout-looking guy who run who ran the course. He's sitting there with his fucking polo fleece top on and his jeans with his thongs. And he has to make this snarky comment that I I like the first one. It was more of an independent film. It was gritty. It had a darker tone, but I wasn't a fan of the of the sequel, Terminator 2, Theme Park Edition, which I thought was a bit of an unnecessary comment. I'd like to see this guy try to make a sequel to a movie as popular as The Terminator. I'd love to see that movie that this guy had made full stop because I guarantee he can't make films for shit. A lot of those people can't. And what's the old saying? Those that can't do, teach. And the people who run these courses have always got something snarky to say about big successful directors. There's always some stupid reason why they don't like them or they don't think they're quote unquote very good at something. I had an interview with another one. It must have been a trait or a trend with washed up filmmakers who will never make a movie in their life and who like to criticize other people for trying who head up these courses because this guy had t-shirt jeans and thongs on as well so I really hate people who wear jeans and thongs it's not a good look if you go to all the effort to put on a pair of jeans you can put on a pair of shoes same spiel I said the same kind of thing but I mentioned Christopher Nolan this time and he goes yeah he's a great director not a very good writer Nothing after that. I said, why? He goes, no, I just don't think he's a very good writer. Couldn't give me a reason why he didn't think he was a good writer. I felt like saying to the guy, this guy really pissed me off, so I felt like saying to him, well, what have you written and directed lately? Have you written anything that's been nominated for an Oscar? No, you haven't. Shut the fuck up. Jog on. So back to James Cameron. The quality over quantity and the way he can tell gigantic stories that have a lot of special effects but still have a heart and soul to them. Unlike a lot of blockbusters that are made today that seem a little bit soulless and a little bit fake, they don't seem like real movies. It seems like everything's done on the computer. They all have the same look to them. They're all middle of the road. They're not great. They're not bad. They're very lukewarm. So this takes us back to the first Avatar. Avatar came out in 2009. I love the film. When it came out, I was looking forward to it. There's a lot of hype around it. It was the first real big 3D movie that had come out. I think there's a couple of other ones that came out before that. There's a lot of documentaries that use 3D. And I reckon there was a, a couple of kids' movies that used 3D, like the Spy Kids movies, but nothing to the scope of Avatar. Remember the first day I saw it? It was hot as fuck. It was summer. Went to my local cinema. There's a lot of hype around the 3D. How is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? Is this just going to be a gimmick to try to sell this gigantic sci-fi movie. I remember when the screen said put the glasses on and the 3D logo stands off the, sc- off the screen. I think, okay, this is pretty cool. This might be worth the extra money. As soon as that film started, when that, especially with that scene where Jake awakens from cryosleep and the water drop is floating in front of his face and then the camera zooms in on it and it's right in front of your face as the audience... I was pretty much hooked. There's certain scenes in that movie that just really put you into that world. When the shuttle lands on Pandora and that back door opens and all the troops are and all the troops are peering out of the open door and you see the atmosphere coming into the ship and they run out onto the tarmac and then you're in this gigantic hostile world when Jack rolls himself out in the wheelchair across the tarmac and their giant amp suit and truck go past and it's got the arrow sticking out of the wheels. 
you get a sense of the scope of things and how big the threat is. Because so far what you've seen of the planet, it looks like this peaceful jungle paradise. Until you see those seven, eight foot arrows sticking out of the tires, you think, okay, fuck, I can see why they've got such a big military presence on the planet. So within that first 10 to 15 minutes of Avatar, you know it's going to be good. And you know it's definitely a cut above the standard sci-fi action movie. And the movie wastes no time either. It drops you straight into the action. There's not a lot of drawn-out backstory between Jake. It's all filled in within a couple of minutes. You get a pretty good feel for his character and the background to his character within about the first 10 minutes. And then comes Colonel Miles Quarch's intro and the famous We're Not in Kansas Anymore speech. And the other thing I loved was the introduction to the characters when Jake meets everyone and his avatar. It's relatively early on in the movie. I think it's not even the 20-minute mark by then, and, you, and you're basically ready to go out to, into Pandora and go exploring this vast alien world. Sigourney Weaver's intro is good too. So is Selfridge. He's the classic corporate cunt who only cares about money and shareholders. Right from the get-go, we're introduced to the world of the RDA and their headquarters. There's a very aliens-esque style to the architecture of the RDA HQ. There's lots of futuristic looking corridors, great metal and industrial lighting. has a very realistic look. It looks similar to the architecture now. I wouldn't be surprised if this is what industrial settings look like in 50 years time. I thought the, the look of Pandora was unique. It was really cool. I like the colors and the bioluminescence. It's a more colorful and inviting world than a lot of sci-fi planets. You don't have that hostile, stormy barren looking landscape it's this giant lush jungle everything's colorful and looks cool even though everything wants to kill and eat you the creatures look cool the aliens look cool i love the design of the rda vehicles and the landscapes the vehicles once again had a very aliens look to about them especially the scorpion and dragon gunships and the more the movie goes on the more you get sucked into this world of the navi and this native alien culture, which you don't really see a lot of. Aliens are always you know, these technologically advanced beings. They're either killing machines or they're benevolent. They've always got ships and advanced weapons and they're always smarter than humans. Where in this, the humans are the technologically advanced aliens and the Navi are the, this primitive culture being preyed upon by this technologically superior force. I like the design of the home tree, and when it's destroyed, it's utterly devastating. By that point in the film, a lot of people were 50-50. You're either with the humans or you're against them. And I think after the home tree is destroyed, not much of the audience really sides with the humans. It's a very impactful scene. Then there's the whole mythology side of the Navi. It was very engaging, and it made you want to know more and dive into this colorful new world. And basically the tagline of Avatar is pretty much spot on. Enter the world. It revolutionized cinema and redefined what a blockbuster film should be. It also pushed what was possible in film, 3D technology, and motion capture. The story of Avatar and its legacy is where I've heard the most criticism. People who criticize it usually highlight the similarities between Dances with Wolves, Pocahontas, and Fern Gully. I'm sure you probably know somebody who has criticized Avatar for these reasons. But pretty much everything we see now is based on or draw similarities from something. There's only so many story ideas at its core. Avatar is an environmental parable. 
If we get the generation of kids and adults interested in the environment and saving the planet, that's a good thing. It's also one of the few times that a big studio has released a film about the environment, deforestation, corporate greed, and Avatar now happens to be owned by Disney. You want to talk about corporate greed? These companies are probably all guilty of at least two of those things. And it's also a story about the treatment and exploitation of indigenous people. And when you look deeper into the story and its characters, Jake represents a man in two worlds. He's a marine. He's a paraplegic marine. His brother's a scientist who dies and he takes over his avatar. He's also a human being that ends up becoming a alien and he ends up falling in love and marrying a another alien, Natiri. Grace and Quarch are basically polar opposites of one another. Grace is the passionate and demanding scientist who is a hippie at heart. You could picture her as a flower power child in the 60s, protesting war and corporate greed. But she's also someone that has realized if she wanted to make a real dent in the world, she needed to get educated and put her talents to work in a scientific field. And you have Quarch, who is this hardcore tough guy soldier, who's obviously been a soldier on earth he's a career-long military guy who's become the head of the security of the rda he's a bit of a prick it's his way or the highway and he's going to stop stop at nothing to complete his mission and unfortunately that involves the mass murder of native people but the unique thing about avatar unlike most sci-fi movies humans are the invaders and the bad guys not the aliens jake's story arc is unlike most characters he goes from human to alien and usually it's the other way around. You usually get attacked by an alien, then an hour later, a baby alien is breaking out of your chest at dinner. There's also the very obvious polar opposites in the design of the Navi and the RDA. The Navi are in touch with nature. They live in the gigantic tree. You see you have that metaphor for the tree of life, providing shelter and a home. And then you have the RDA who represent everything that's wrong with humanity, brutality and corporate greed. They don't care for the indigenous life forms. They just want to strip mine the planet for its valuable resources. I also like the look of the command center of the, of the RDA with the giant holograms and the screens, the uniforms of the soldiers and the mining personnel. It looks very realistic. It's not too far in the future. So it makes it very easy to identify with being a human watching the film. And that's one of the things you notice a lot with 3D was those screens sticking out. The message of Avatar is clear right from the get-go. There's no two ways about it. The film is a masterpiece technically, visually, story and character-wise. All of the characters go on their own very different fleshed-out journeys. They all make very dramatic choices. There's more characterization between the main 10 characters of Avatar than there are with most of the Marvel films. It's very easy to forget that sometimes because it's a very visually orientated movie. You get lost at looking at all the bright colors and weird creatures running around and you forget the more subtle nuances of the character development. Especially Jake, he goes on a roller coaster ride. And unlike a lot of sci-fi movies, there is a very strong emotional presence in the film. And that's all reinforced by James Horner's haunting soundtrack. The destruction of Home Tree is one of the most emotional parts of the film. It wouldn't have been an easy soundtrack to produce either, because there are two very different but linked styles of music. There's the human sound and the more tribal Navi sounds that make up the soundtrack, which is even more of a challenge because you have to come up with a futuristic human sound and a primitive alien sound. 
Before we get into the review of Avatar 2, let's have a look back at the long and pioneering road that was the production of Avatar. Way back in 1994, James Cameron wrote the first draft of Avatar, turning in an 80-page treatment of the film. And yes, you can bring up the comparison with Dances with Wolves. The book came out in 1988, and the movie came out in 1990. So Dances with Wolves was probably fresh in his mind. I suspect James Cameron probably had the idea for Avatar a lot longer than 94, or at least a loose idea. When asked about the origins of Avatar, James Cameron has said he was inspired by pretty much every single sci-fi book and adventure books by H. Ryder Haggard and Edgar Rice Burroughs that he had read when he was a kid. So what took so long? Well, Titanic got in the way and movie technology wasn't good enough at the time to pull off what James Cameron had envisioned Avatar to be. And this is much like George Lucas and the Star Wars prequels. The long road to production and release. The year is now 1996, and after finishing the box office juggernaut that was Titanic, James Cameron announced he would be filming Avatar. Of particular interest, he mentions as far back as 1996 that Avatar would be shot using synthetic, computer-generated actors. So even back then, he must have seen the digital revolution that was coming to cinema, and he wasn't far off. And obviously he had first-hand knowledge of this, Working in the film industry, he's made some pretty huge films by then. He also pushed the frontiers of visual effects technology in The Abyss, Terminator 2, and Titanic. And Titanic has some pretty special effects that still hold up today. He then goes on to explain that the film would cost a measly $100 million and require only six leading actors. This is a quote from him, who appear to be real but do not exist in the physical world. Unfortunately, he got both of them wrong. Avatar cost a little more than $100 million and had more than six actors. Digital production and effects company, Digital Domain, was brought on board to join the project. Digital Domain was founded by James Cameron, Stan Winston and Scott Ross. Production was slated for mid-97, with a release date of 1999. Why didn't the film come out in 1999? Well, James Cameron didn't think digital technology was up to the challenge of creating his digital world and it was still some years off, off of his story and vision. It's very interesting that he knew as far back as 97 that technology wasn't up to creating this world that he had envisioned. It also must have been very frustrating for James Cameron, having this clearly defined vision in his head and not being able to get it out or produce it properly. Because if he did, he would have probably have remade the film by now because he wouldn't have been happy with it. I know I would have. So over the next decade, James Cameron focused his attention on making documentaries while working on the technology needed for the film. And if you've never seen any of James Cameron's documentaries, they're pretty outstanding. Expedition Bismarck, which was directed by James Cameron and Gary Johnston, was a documentary about finding the German battleship, the Bismarck. Then he follows that up with Ghost of the Abyss, which was a Titanic documentary featuring Bill Paxton, and then there was Aliens of the Deep. It's now 2005, and a story broke in Bloomberg Businessweek that 20th Century Fox had fronted the money for a proof-of-concept clip for Avatar. They put up $10 million for the clip. That's a lot of money for a glorified test, I suppose. Cameron completes the clip and hands it into Fox executives in October of 2005. So the film's still pretty far off from being released. 
There's still a couple of years to go and there's a lot of work to do. It is now February of 2006 and James Cameron tells the world that his latest movie, Project 880, is a retooled version of Avatar. It's around the early to mid-2000s now. Digital film technology and visual effects had started to progress and evolve into what they are today. The digital landscape was about to be opened up and changed forever. I'm not sure what the 880 means. James Cameron wasn't the only filmmaker working on trying to push digital cinema technology into new frontiers. There were others. He wasn't the only filmmaker working on entirely digital characters. Peter Jackson and his Lord of the Rings trilogy had not only pioneered the use of an entirely CG character in the relatively new motion capture, it had set the bar for it. I don't know if these two were in collaboration during the production of Lord of the Rings. I don't know if Jackson came up with it. But Lord of the Rings was one of the first films to use motion capture in this new and pioneering way. It's also known as motion tracking or performance capture. Going back to the late 90s, George Lucas and ILM came up with the first digital character in The Phantom Menace. It was one of the first films to use a fully digital character. And that character is everybody's favourite Gungan, Jar Jar Binks. He is the first digital character to receive a decent amount of screen time and to be considered a leading character. Jar Jar is probably the fifth or sixth main character in The Phantom Menace. He shares a great deal of screen time with the two human leads, Ewan McGregor and Liam Neeson. Unfortunately, audiences seem to hate him. I thought he was funny. He was a little annoying, but I don't think he deserved quite the amount of hate he got. But unfortunately, that's just the way it is. He didn't appear much in Attack of the Clones due to his unpopularity in The Phantom Menace. Jar Jar was the first motion capture performance similar to Avatar. Star Wars The Phantom Menace had the biggest breakthrough in CGI and digital technology in years, which really kickstarts the digital revolution. And if you really want to get technical, the first fully digital character was in 1985 in the Steven Spielberg produced The Young Sherlock Holmes. And that character was the Stained Glass Knight, who was created by ILM, George Lucas's company. So George Lucas and the Wizards at ILM are really the ones responsible for pioneering digital characters. But surprisingly, motion capture, on the other hand, has been around for a very long time, in one form or another. The study of motion predates movies themselves, and goes back as far as the 19th century. And the purpose of this was to better understand how animals and humans moved, not for entertainment purposes. It served more of a scientific pursuit back then. Motion capture has also been used by the military, video game developers, sports development, and for biomechanics. It's pretty much someone provides the movements to be studied, then translated via another form, such as data points on a computer or a program. The first advancements in motion capture come in the early 1900s. Rotoscope is a form of motion capture. Max Fletcher came up with Rotoscope in 1915 in his two-minute short film, Out of the Inkwell, that came out in 1918. You've probably heard of Rotoscope. It's animation traced over a live-action reference. Just think a scanner darkly. This animation process caught the eye of one Walt Disney, who incorporated it into several of his films. So what has this got to do with Avatar and modern motion capture, you may ask? Well, Disney experimented with rotoscope in feature films, 
1937, Disney released Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Just stay with me, people. This has a point. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was revolutionary. And remembering this was a long time ago before computers and advanced camera systems and all that other technical stuff. The production of Snow White was a first in the film industry. The film was shot with real actors acting out the scenes and being filmed like any other old movie before or since. Then the frames slash the footage, whatever you want to call it, was then handed over to the animators who then drew over the top of the frames giving them its rotoscope look, making it technically an animated film. Which I didn't know, I always thought that Snow White was an animated film, I did had no idea it was actually shot with live actors who were then pretty much transformed in animation. It was all done by hand, it would have been very labour intensive, there was no computers to do the work for you, you had to do it all by hand. The film was a success and Disney was onto something. They used the rotoscope in their next few movies including Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan and Sleeping Beauty. I had no idea it went back as far as the early 1900s or that some of those movies were rotoscoped. Which kind of makes sense now because that's probably why those early animated movies look so good and have retained that classic look all these years. The early animated Disney films definitely have a unique look which is something I don't think their current crop of computer animated films have. Too much reliance on technology, especially animation, does take away a little from the art form. Humans drawing and making art, and all the minor flaws that come with it, is what makes art art. Computers and modern animation tries way too hard to be perfect all the time. There's always advancements in the technology to the point of perfectionism, which results in the focus of the animation or the art being on the innovation of the artistic tech and not the quality of the art itself, such as a hand-drawn character. Yeah, that's probably why those early Disney movies did look as good as they did. I remember the scene where the dwarves are singing that hi-ho song and they're all walking in line. It looks very fluid and very realistic how someone would actually move and now that I know this, it was because they trace over the top of real people acting out the scene, which is something some of the more modern Disney movies didn't quite have. They were always too clunky. They tried hard to be fluid, but I don't think they quite got there. The other thing I think that gives it a unique look is the fluidity of the animation. The more 80s animation doesn't have that. It has it a bit, and those films are still classic in their own right, especially com compared with the modern-day remakes such as The Lion King and Aladdin, but the tech was in a weird transitional stage then. I always wondered why the characters looked and moved more realistic in the early 1900s films. That's because they were real people acting out the scene, with animation traced over the top of it, where the animated version of Aladdin and The Lion King, they had a fluidity to the animation, but it was more flowy. You could tell it was... I know, probably not actors acting it out. It was more of a getting things figured out on a program on a computer. I'm not sure. Maybe they use motion capture on those films. I don't know, but they don't seem to move quite the same way. They don't move like a real person. They seem to be a bit more clunky. Anyway, moving on. So from 1937 till about 1978, not a lot of innovation or progress was made on the motion capture front. No major advancements were made or pioneered in 41 years. Rotoscope was still in use. It didn't really change a hell of a lot. There was no investment in new technology over the decades, which is very surprising given how Disney operates now compared to the past, 
where they're at basically the forefront of technological innovation and animation with the movies they make today. So I find it very surprising that 41 years passed and nothing had changed. I don't know, maybe the system worked and they didn't see the need to change. Maybe they thought, well, it looks good, it works. Let's not waste any time or money trying to figure out a more efficient way to do it. Let's just pay the animators to animate and everyone goes home happy. Compare that to, with today, where there's new innovations in visual effects technology every couple of years. It seems like the first crop of Marvel movies have already been outdated in terms of what was possible with computer-generated effects compared to Avengers Endgame, the new Doctor Strange, and Spider-Man. So this is very interesting that Disney didn't put a lot of money into innovation. A few films outside of Disney did push the rotoscope envelope. Ralph Bakshi used it in his animated Lord of the Rings movie, using it again in American Pop in 1981, and again on Cool World in 1992. Cool World combined conventional film and animation. Kim Basinger's character was animated alongside the real Brad Pitt and Gabrielle Byrne, and it was much like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It was high-quality animation and real-life film. So heading into the 2000s, and rotoscope was still being used. In Richard Linklater's Waking Life in 2001, he follows that up again with the scanner Darkly in 2006. The new millennium brought with it the biggest advances in motion capture technology in the late 90s. A film called Sinbad, Beyond the Veil of Mists, pioneered the use of motion capture. The movie was a massive flop, costing $30 million to make back then, and grossing at 29.245 million. However, it did push the envelope. It was the first movie to be completely animated using mostly motion capture with traditional animation techniques. The movie starred Brendan Fraser and Mark Hamill. It was shot using a 3D optical technique. It's basically actors playing their parts with tracking dots, capturing the movements, much the same way motion capture is used today, and being put through a computer coming out the other side as an animated character. As I mentioned before, Jar Jar was the first fully digital character in Star Wars The Phantom Menace in 1999. George Lucas invested the time, money, and took a pretty big risk back then on this new and very ambitious tool of movie making. Motion capture during the early 2000s was very expensive. It also took a lot of computer power to process all the data. The first Mummy movie, used motion capture in small amounts, mainly on Arnold Vosloo. He had tracking markers placed on him to achieve certain effect shots. And this is mostly the varying stages of regeneration and facial effects. Remember the scene where he's got half of his cheek missing, he's got scarabs coming out of it. Those effects are still pretty impressive and that movie does hold up. I love the first Mummy, it's a great movie. The other obvious motion capture in The Mummy was when he was actually a mummy when he just come out of the sarcophagus and he's walking around sucking the life out of people. That came out in 1999, the same year as Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Ridley Scott used it in Gladiator in 2000. He didn't use it in ways that you think. He used it primarily to create the crowds in the Colosseum. Then came another big budget CGI motion capture flop, and that was Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. The whole movie was CGI, Motion capture, the eyes of the industry were watching to see the outcome of this 
new technological revolution in cinema and I'm guessing a lot of actors were waiting pretty anxiously and hoping this movie would fail so they wouldn't be out of a job. Sequels were planned to Final Fantasy. Square Pictures, which produced it, claimed it would change movies forever with this new all CG way of making movies. Unfortunately for Square Pictures, it was a disaster at the box office and it was an expensive demonstration in what was to come. At the same time, Final Fantasy was failing to make money at the box office. On the other side of the earth, the Middle Earth that is, in the land of New Zealand, Peter Jackson was giving the world a taste of what the future of motion capture had in store in Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. And that, of course, were the scenes featuring Gollum in the second half of the film, showing Gollum spying on the Fellowship in the mines of Moria and on the river. Gollum takes a starring role in The Two Towers in 2002. When you first see Gollum in The Two Towers, it's pretty spectacular. This is the first time we've seen a very advanced digital character besides Jar Jar. When The Two Towers was released, the world was wowed by what motion capture could do. Peter Jackson took motion capture to the next level, which set the standard for what the tech could do. Gollum was also the first film to performance capture in real time, having an actor in a motion capture suit performing alongside other actors on a set or on location, as opposed to being confined to a studio. And this was a very big achievement back then. There was no more being confined to a studio or a room full of computers with cameras and animators watching you perform movements after a scene had already been shot. I'm assuming that when they were filming Lord of the Rings that Andy Serkis's performance was being uploaded straight into a computer at the same time as Sean Astin and Elijah Wood. Actors didn't have to come into a studio after a scene or a movie has been shot and react out the part in motion capture and try to act alongside a scene or another actor playing the part. It also meant that a motion capture actor was a real actor. Andy Serkis was a leading role in The Lord of the Rings. He wasn't a motion capture performer. He was on set every day performing alongside Elijah Wood and Sean Astin on location. He wasn't just a motion capture guy or a motion capture performer. He was an actor, and an actor that was important as the principal actors on set. One of the biggest differences besides the advancements in technology was actors like Andy Serkis could deliver a fully fleshed out performance, i.e. they are actually acting rather than recreating movements. In my opinion, I think he should have got an Oscar for Gollum and for Caesar, though the Academy really needs to recognize motion capture as real acting. Just because you're wearing a tight lycra suit with tracking dots all over it doesn't mean it's not acting. His performances as Gollum and Caesar are as good as any other Oscar-winning performance I've seen. Andy Serkis' performance in Lord of the Rings is one of the big reasons why those films have stood the test of time. He pioneered the new way of performing motion capture. So this leads Serkis to start his own motion capture studio, the Imaginarium, and why not? He's a pioneer in motion capture, so it makes a lot of sense that he would invest in a motion capture studio. A few years later, he dons the tight lycra suit and motion tracking dots in King Kong, collaborating again with Peter Jackson. At the same time, filmmakers all over were playing with motion capture and what it could bring to movies. 
Robert Zemeckis used it next in the Polar Express and again in Beowulf. Polar Express was box office gold, but Beowulf was a flop. I remember seeing Beowulf in the cinema. It was a weird cinematic experience. Some scenes looked like you were watching a real film, and then there was other film, other scenes where you knew it was animation, because obviously you knew the actors weren't eight foot tall and ripped. Ray Winston isn't a gigantic Norse hero with an eight-pack. So it was a bit weird. The movie was, yeah, it was all right. It didn't break the technical frontiers, I think Robert Zemeckis had intended it to. It was an average film, and it kind of seemed unnecessary. If it was a live-action film with real actors, it probably would have been better. But it kind of came off like a technical and a visual effects demonstration more than anything. The motion capture was good, but it didn't really add to the story. This is around 2007, so this is a time where special effects were really starting to dominate films. And every film that came out was pretty visual effects heavy. So it kind of seemed unnecessary that they needed to make a movie with all visual effects at a time where visual effects were pretty much dominant in these types of movies anyway. So this leads Robert Zemeckis to start his own studio. The studio was called Image Movers. He produced several more motion capture films. A Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey and Mars Needs Mums. Unfortunately for him, both films failed to make a dent in the box office. And much like Beowulf a few years beforehand, these movies really just come off as very good-looking animated films. There was too much animation and not enough human in it. Unlike Lord of the Rings, where Andy Serkis is playing one digital character in a world full of real actors. There was too much over-reliance on technology and animation, which I think takes away from a bit of the purpose of motion capture. Yeah, you can use it in all animated movies, but it looks far better if it's so realistic in a live-action film that you can't tell the difference. Both of these films, A Christmas Carol and Mars Needs Mums, were very good-looking animated films. But much like Beowulf, they looked very real in some scenes and very animated in others. These films were very expensive and experimental. And unfortunately for Robert Zemeckis, he closes the studio not long after opening it. And that leads to the big issue with motion capture and the use of over-animation in some motion capture films. And that is what is referred to in the industry as the Uncanny Valley. So what is the Uncanny Valley? And why is it important in motion capture and animation? So I had to look this up. I found an article on what is the Uncanny Valley. It's on Very Well Mind. The article is entitled, What is the Uncanny Valley? Example and Explanations for the Uncanny Valley by Kendrick Cherry, 14th of November 2022. This article relates mostly to the Uncanny Valley in robotics, but does mention CGI and animation as well. It's mainly a robotic term, I'm pretty sure. But before I get too ahead of myself, I should probably just go ahead and read it. Uncanny Valley. The Uncanny Valley is a term used to describe the relationship between the human-like appearance of a robotic object and the emotional response it invokes. In this phenomenon, people feel a sense of unease or even revulsion in response to humanoid robots that are highly realistic. And you've probably all seen those videos on YouTube of those creepy robot babies and that Japanese robot the guy made of himself. Just how eerie the face and the skin look and how the, how the face moves and the creepy soulless eyes that just stare back at you. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go to YouTube and look up a couple of examples. Androids, avatars, and animations aim for extreme realism, but get caught in a disturbing chasm dubbed the Uncanny Valley. They are extremely realistic and lifelike, but when we examine them, 
we see they are not quite human. When a robotic or animated depiction lies in this valley, people tend to feel a sense of unease, strangeness, disgust, or creepiness. I know I've definitely felt creepiness when you look at those robots. You instantly don't trust them. So if Skynet is going to rise up sometime in the near future, they better do a very good job at making realistic-looking Terminators. And I think that was even mentioned in the original Terminator. Is that the original Terminators were an instant giveaway. They were too big and bulky. The skin was rubber and it gave them away. To a, re to a real human, it was a clear indicator that it was fake. And it was probably something they should stay away from. The phenomenon has implications for the field of robotics and artificial intelligence. Devices and online avatars that are made to help mimic the human touch may actually end up alienating people who are using such tools. Interesting. Origins of the Uncanny Valley. The phenomenon first coined and described by the Japanese roboticist Mashiaro Moiri in an article published in 1970. Moiri identified the phenomena as, excuse my Japanese, Bakimi no Tanagenesho, give my pronunciation for that, meaning Valley of Eeriness. In 1978, author Jasa Reidhart translated the term Uncanny Valley in the book Robots, Facts, Fiction, and Prediction. In his work, Moiri noted that people found his robots more appealing if they look more human, while people found his robots more appealing the more human they appeared. This only worked up to a certain point. When robots appear close but not quite human, people tend to feel uncomfortable or even disgusted. Once the uncanny valley has been reached, people feel uneasy, disturbed, and sometimes afraid. This is a quote. I have noticed that in climbing toward the goal of making robotics robots appear human, our affinity for them increases until we come to a valley, which I call the uncanny valley. Moiri explained in his seminal paper on the topic. Moiri used several examples to clarify this idea. An industrial robot has little human likeness and therefore generates little affinity in observers. A toy robot, on the other hand, has a more human likeness and tends to be more appealing. A prosthetic hand, he noted, tends to lie in this uncanny valley. It can be highly lifelike, yet generate feelings of unease. That's an interesting point. Because if you see someone with a fake hand, it instantly stands out as a fake hand. It doesn't look right. The skin tone's a bit off. It looks rubbery and lifeless. It doesn't look like it has any bones to it. When you look at your hands, the hands nearly have their own soul to them. They nearly have their own lifelike presence, the way they can move. Everyone's hand moves in a unique way. You have those veins in the back of the hand, the knuckles, the joints. It's a very complex movement, the way the hands move. And there's lots of tiny bones in the hand. I think there's probably well, I think there's more bones in the hand than anywhere else in the human body. So watch out for fake hands. They're getting more realistic now. Modern technology has obviously made them more realistic. But until you, they have, I suppose, real skin on them, they're probably always going to look a little off. Uncanny Valley Examples the Uncanny Valley has been observed in a variety of contexts, from highly realistic robots to video game characters. Some of the best-known examples of the Uncanny Valley can be seen in movies. These include Final Fantasy. The 2001 movie Final Fantasy The Spirits Within showcased some of the most realistic CGI animation ever used at the time. Despite efforts to make the animated characters appear super realistic, the movie was a flop. The film's commercial failure at the box office is often attributed to the Uncanny Valley, Simply put, people didn't want to watch the movie because they found the animation disturbing. 
and I think that hits the nail on the head. I'm not a huge Final Fantasy fan, but when I, I remember when I first saw the trailer for it, I thought, oh, this looks like a decent-looking, big-action sci-fi movie, until I found out it was animated and I wanted to have nothing to do with it. I don't see a lot of animated movies, particularly for that reason. I don't particularly like the animation, and I don't really like the ultra-realistic animation that tends to look a little fake in some scenes and re very realistic in others, much like Beowulf. I saw Beowulf because I'm a history nerd, and I thought I'd give it a chance. It was also in 3D, I think. And I definitely remember seeing that in the cinema and not being ultra-impressed. The animation kind of puts you off because it sucks you in and it kind of lies to you and you start to believe that this is a real human or a real actor. And then the lie kicks in and then you realise, no, wait, I'm actually watching animation. So when will the film studios stop lying to us? Shrek. The early test screenings for the film Shrek elicited unexpected feelings of anxiety in children in response to the character Princess of Fiona. Interesting. She was simply too lifelike, causing kids to feel unnerved and even frightened. Many crying whenever she appeared on screen. Yeah, interesting. So even kids and very young children know this is fake. It's like they have a physical reaction to seeing something that they know is essentially a lie. It's like their brains know even at that age that what they're seeing is not real and could be perceived as a threat. They know it's not human. It's almost like their minds and bodies have a physical reaction to seeing a to essentially what is a artificial human or a artificial looking human. Based on the responses and feedback, the filmmakers edited her appearance prior to the film's theatrical release to give her a more cartoon-like appearance in order to prevent the Uncanny Valley effect. Interesting. So it's like a de-evolution of the animation process because a lot of Disney films we've seen in the past 10 or so years have gone for that ultra-realistic motion capture animation and it's always failed. Yet Disney doesn't seem to pick up on it. People complain about The Lion King because the animals were very boring. Their faces didn't move. They had not much movement in the eyes. The mouths didn't really move that much compared to the lifelike characters in the original animated, human animated Lion King. So it's interesting that Disney is going for the ultra-realistic look where a film like Shrek had to make it look more animated because it was unnerving children. I don't think many people even think about that when they watch movies like this, about how much work goes into them and the whole psychology of some of this stuff. If it looks too real, the human brain knows it's fake. Interesting. But if it looks fake, the brain trusts it and accepts it as being animation and doesn't set off a physical reaction like kids crying when they see Princess Fiona. Very interesting. Cats. The 2019 film adaptation of Cats featured humanoid felines that many people found unsettling. While some reportedly found the effect harmonious, others reported feeling downright revolted. On social media, many viewers described the film as weird, creepy, and an, and even nightmare-inducing. Yeah, interesting, because I haven't seen that film, and I remember seeing the trailer for it, and the faces looking ridiculous. It looked like a very cheap music video, despite the fact that millions of dollars went into it. The faces looked fake, and they don't quite blend with the rest of the body. I've always wondered why they didn't go the old-fashioned route with that, or just do the entire thing animated. Because that was fucking heinous. Like, I haven't, I haven't seen the movie, I don't particularly want to. But I was put off just by seeing the trailers, and I think many people were, which led to that movie being a box office disaster. The fact that the film relies so heavily on movement may have also played a role in, in the audience's reaction. 
Mori has proposed that the addition of motion can amplify the uncanny valley effect. And in this case, the film includes both human ant-like movements as well as cat-like motions that serve to further confuse the viewer. Yeah, interesting. So the mo the movement also plays a part in your brain knowing this is a complete lie. The motion helps sell the lie, and if the motion doesn't fit the animation, the lie can't be sold. It's interesting that the brain picks up on these, these things. If something doesn't move correctly, it sends up a huge red flag that something is not right, and it shouldn't be trusted. Which I find is incredible in this day and age, because you can't tell me the studios didn't put some research into that before the film came out. Because surely they would have known this, because Shrek came out a long time ago, so the data's already there. Cats wasn't the first movie to try this. Beowulf and Robert Zemeckis' films failed for a pretty similar reason. So it's not like the film studios didn't have enough data on this. They could have hired a couple of interns to look into it, or do some research into the effects of motion and animation on viewers and their reactions. Shrek has been around for, what, over 20 years now? So you can't tell me that they didn't know this prior to the filming of Cats. So they don't even have that as an excuse of, as why this film failed. It was more ignorance. And they had enough time when the trailer came out to go back and fix it like they did with Sonic and his eyes a couple of years ago when fans protested that they made him look too cute and they didn't make him look animated enough. They tried to make him look like this weird alien human thing. I find it amazing that the producers of Cats released the movie as it is and didn't go back and redo the effects or the animation or movements after the film got criticized so heavily on social media after the trailer came out. It's amazing that they just released it as it is and just completely ignored it. And ultimately that film was a failure because of the studio's ignorance. In these and other examples, being close to human in appearance does not produce affinity with the characters among viewers. When characters fall into the uncanny valley, people instead perceive the character characters as cold, vacant, and soulless. What causes the uncanny valley effect? There have been a number of proposed explanations for why people experience the uncanny valley effect, but no clear-cut con consensus has emerged. Some theories suggest that the phenomenon is biological, while others suggest that there are cultural explanations as well. The following are some factors that may play a role. Ambiguity. A 2016 paper suggested that the sensation of being creeped out is often caused by a sense of ambiguity. When we see things that are almost but not quite human, it creates a tension that feels unpleasant. Such effects are sometimes exploited to heighten the horror or creepiness in movies. Horror films, for example, often infuse human characteristics into non-human entities, including dolls, such as Annabelle, and clowns in It to terrify audiences. Yeah, interesting. So horror movies have got the whole psychological analysis side of human behavior down, and they exploit that for the sake of suspense and tension in their films. But a movie like Cats completely ignores it. I'm kind of leading towards this is a biological reaction. It's almost like the brain is hardwired into assessing movement to determine whether it's a threat or a friend. Is that thing moving over there? Is that moving like a lion or is that moving like a domestic cat? Is that human moving like an ordinary man or is that chimpanzee, a gorilla, or a sasquatch. I think there's a biological and psychological reason people react the way they do in these situations. And when their brains reach the uncanny valley, it's almost like the brain saying, you're not going to trick me. We've seen this little trick before. It definitely leans towards a biological and psychological explanation. 
It's almost as if the brain refuses to be tricked and it senses the movement and animation as a trick that isn't going to fool it into believing that it is something that it is not. It's like it's been hardwired to seek out possible anomalies in movement and give it an appropriate threat level. It's very interesting and I had no idea that there was such a psychological basis for bad animation in films. Mismatched elements. Research has also shown that people tend to be disturbed when elements that normally don't occur together are combined. For example, a paper published in 2011 found that while people are not disturbed by robots with robot voices or people with human voices, they do feel creeped out by robots with human voices. Yeah, interesting. I wonder if James Cameron knew any of this when he wrote Terminator. This effect does not just hold true for robots but can also be seen in computer animations featuring people and animals. Inconsistency. Even in highly realistic depictions, people are adept at spotting even the smallest inconsistencies in a robotic or animated humanoid. Even relatively minor divergences can make a character go from lifelike to uncanny. Interesting. In one of Moiri's original examples, a robotic character was suddenly seen as unlikable and creepy when it smiled slightly too slowly. Mm. Survival response. Moiri and others have suggested that the Uncanny Valley is an uh, aversive, evolved response to the potential threats of death and disease. Because something is human-like, but not quite lifelike, it may invoke the same response that people feel when they encounter something that is dead or dying. Category Uncertainty. Theories also suggest that the Uncanny Valley may exist due to the difficulty in determining what category an entity belongs to, including whether a figure is a real living human or a computer-generated three-dimensional model. Human and non-human represent two separate and mutually exclusive categories. So when something approaches a point where it seems to transition to one to the other, it can trigger feelings of cognitive dissonance. When people hold conflicting beliefs, they tend to experience feelings of psychological discomfort. In this case, there is a conflict between the belief that an entity is human and the belief that it is not human. Something that looked human might abruptly appear non-human, or it may even shift back and forth as the viewer observes it. The artificial representation is realistic enough to almost fool you into thinking it is alive, but it falls short of reality just enough that it clashes with your expectations of how a real living person would behave. This mismatch between what you are seeing and your expectations may make you feel ambivalent or even threatened. In other words, it creeps you out. Research on the Uncanny Valley. While Maury first proposed the theory in 1970, formal empirical investigations did not begin until the mid-2000s. Some research has suggested the existence of the valley, although findings of how and why it happens are mixed. Likeness and eeriness. A 2013 study examined the relationship between human likeness and eeriness and found evidence supporting the existence of the uncanny valley. The researchers found that there was a linear relationship between likeness and eeriness when manipulating facial proportions and realism. Children's Responses a 2014 study found that children between the ages of 9 and 11 were also prone to experience feelings of uncanniness in response to human-like virtual characters. Virtual human-like characters were seen as being stranger and less friendly. 
Interestingly, these feelings of unease were more pronounced in instances when the characters lacked upper facial expression. Startled facial expressions were also more likely to be perceived as uncanny. Other names. While some researchers have supported Maury's original hypothesis, some have characterized the phenomenon as more of a cliff or a wall than a valley. In other words, rather than ever rising up to the other side of that valley, likability may simply drop off once a robot reaches a certain degree of realism. Okay, interesting. Can it be prevented? And not everyone agrees that the valley itself truly exists. For example, one of the earliest scientific investigations on the phenomena was conducted in 2005 and con- and concluded that the eerie feeling people experience has more to do with poor design and aesthetics, something that can occur at any level of realism. While people certainly experience a sense of the uncanny in some cases, the research proposed that the valley could be overcome with good design. Implications of the Uncanny Valley The Uncanny Valley has a number of implications in various fields. These include robotics, as people rely more and more on robotic technology. It is important to design devices that do not create uneasiness or distrust. This is particularly true in the development of assistive technologies designed to help people with disabilities perform tasks and interact with their environment. It could also get pretty scary if artificial intelligence starts in designing things that are so realistic you can't tell them apart from human. Think of a Blade Runner type situation or a Terminator, especially if it is people that need this technology to interact with an environment. It could become so realistic that it might even fool the living. And then you have a whole bunch of science fiction possibilities that might become reality. On the one hand, if a robot looks fake and like a robot, you know it's a robot. But if it's so lifelike, you might let your murderer or a villain in your front door. And then you might end up being killed by the robot. They could potentially also take over the world if they're so realistic. Especially if artificial intelligence and the people designing them know, obviously know this research. Especially if the people or artificial intelligence programs designing them know this, and they undoubtedly do. They may come up with designs to deliberately trick that part of the brain and make it appear more human. People are more likely to be receptive to designs that are both useful and appealing. Designs that fall into the uncanny valley are likely to be poorly received and utilized less frequently. Digital avatars. Digital avatars, these representations are used in a number of areas including online customer service and online therapy. In the field of online therapy, digital representations are often utilized to facilitate online communication between therapists and clients particularly in situations that involve online chat or email communication. When they are effectively used, avatars may help promote the therapeutic relationship, but overly realistic depictions may interfere with the process. For example, one study found that robots that looked too human-like were often rated as being not only less likable, but also less trustworthy. Interesting, there's a trust issue with the realistic appearance. So if it looks fake, you're not going to trust it because it's not a human. But if it looks human, you're more likely to trust it, even if it is a potential threat. This whole thing is basically your brain and your senses being lied to. You're being tricked into believing something is human, whether it is there for good purposes or bad purposes. You've let your guard down and the potential enemy has wandered straight through the front door. It's a great sci-fi movie and all of this. 
that's something they explore in the Westworld TV show, the nature of real and unreal, what is human, what is not. The robots are so realistic that you can't tell them apart. And the thing I like about that show is some of the robots are so realistic they don't even know they're robots. They're as shocked as anyone else to find out that they're robotic and not human because they believe they're human all along because the programming and the lie is so good. That would be a truly horrifying situation if that did come true. It's a very interesting line of thought. And this gets down to what we're talking about. Film. As blockbuster films increasingly rely on CGI effects, filmmakers have continued to work toward developing realistic computer-generated animations that blend seamlessly and don't provoke the uncanny valley. While many animated films are often criticized for their unrealistic depictions of the human form, such designs featuring overly large eyes and other dramatically exaggerated features, this may often be an intentional strategy to, to avoid the uncanny valley. Taking this back to Avatar, just look at the design for the Navi. They have exaggerated limbs, elongated bodies, and very big eyes. So was that a deliberate design ploy to keep the audience engaged and not question what they were seeing and to help get the audience into the world of Pandora? If it was, that's pretty clever. Game design. The Uncanny Valley can also have an impact on how players react to realistic characters in video games. Designers may take advantage of the Uncanny Valley to create a sense of dyspathy for villainous characters. Criticism to the Uncanny Valley. The Uncanny Valley concept has also been the subject of criticism. Age may play a role. Some have suggested the phenomenon is more common in older generations. On the other hand, younger people who grew up seeing robotics and CGI effects may be less likely to experience it. Further research is needed to determine if age might have, have an effect. That would be contradicted by the younger children having a reaction to Princess Fiona. Some of these kids may have grown up with robotics. They may have been familiar with them or even seen or interacted with robots. But they were still put off by the realistic depiction of Princess Fiona and they knew it. Even though none of them would have known what the Uncanny Valley was. They picked up on something wasn't right and they reacted to it. The effect is highly varied. Other critics have noted that the effect happens in different situations and affects different senses. The heterogeneity suggests that each unique situation where it occurs may have different causes, avoiding the uncanny valley. As robots become increasingly important in everyday life, researchers and designers are interested in finding ways to create tools that will not fall into the uncanny valley. This may involve making robotic devices even more realistic so they move beyond the valley and appear more likable. Researchers have also proposed a number of design principles that may help animators and roboticists creating uncanny effects. This includes matching human proportions with realistic textures, not mixing non-human and human elements, ensuring that behaviors, appearance, and abilities do not conflict. Another approach is to create tools or devices that simply do not seek to mimic a human appearance by relying on a non-human design. The device may be more appealing without running into the risk of alienating or even revolting those who interact with robotic devices. In an interview with Wired, Mori states that while it may be possible to bridge the uncanny valley, he sees no point in trying. Instead, he advocates designing things that stop before they reach the point of uncanniness. Sound advice. A word from a very well. There has yet to be a lot of research into the phenomenon of the uncanny valley. 
So more information about it, why it happens, and how to overcome it will surely emerge as time goes on. Maury himself has stated in an interview with E-Spectrum that his original observation was intended to be more of a guideline for designers rather than a scientific statement. As technology continues to advance, it's possible that robots and digital animations could become so incredibly realistic that they simply blend with reality so people don't experience discomfort or anxiety. For now, robots, digital avatars, and online animations will continue to become an increasingly common part of everyday life, so it is important for designers to consider the audience's emotional response. And that is kind of terrifying. I think the future should be pretty interesting. I don't think the next 10 years are going to be particularly boring. That's if we make it that far. You've got climate change, nuclear war, alien invasion, artificial intelligence takeover, and now artificial humans that are so realistic we may not be able to tell them apart. Sounds terrifying. So back to the world of motion capture. It's around the 2000s, after Gollum and King Kong. The trend in motion capture leans toward photorealistic animation, similar to Robert Zemeckis's. However, it burns itself out pretty quickly and proved to be very unpopular with moviegoers. And this is the Mars Needs Mums, Polar Express type of animation. As I said before, I wouldn't pay for a photorealistic animated movie over a live-action one. I'd always choose to go and see a live-action one. And this is pretty much because it mostly seems like a gimmick, especially the first few, and obviously no one's really made those type of movies since, so it, the photorealistic animation was more or less a gimmick, which is how it turned out. The second reason I'm not so big on it is, as I mentioned before, it looked off. It wasn't really animation, it wasn't live action, it is, on the one hand it is, and on the other hand it isn't. It wasn't really a regular film, and it felt really weird. It was this new hybrid mashup of actors acting out scenes in motion capture and then being transformed into animation, basically. Now, if you compare that with Avatar, Avatar used real actors, and it also used real actors in motion capture. You had you had two different sides or two different systems working in unison. You had CGI environments, but you also had regular props and costumes. Avatar seems to get the mix of realistic and unrealistic right, where other films it doesn't quite work out. And going back to the Beowulf example, I think a lot of audience members and moviegoers have a lot of reservations about seeing those types of films over a live-action film. It's animation, but it's not quite animation. It's kind of this weird hybrid medium, and it, you kind of already go into the movie skeptical and with reservations on what it is that you're seeing, regardless of the film, regardless if the film is actually good or not. Now, if you compare that with the Pixar movies at the time, which all favoured the traditional animation method, and they still do, they're very much for the artists creating the animation and not a program. And this is a debate we're seeing now with artificial intelligence produced art versus regular old artwork created by humans. It's also interesting that places like Comic-Con and a lot of the film and comic conventions are banning vendors from selling AI-generated art. I know at some conventions coming up, they have some pretty strong feelings about AI art. They side directly with the artist because it's always been a place for artists to sell their works. And if you didn't have artists selling works at these 
conventions, there wouldn't be a hell of a lot of vendors, especially the comic book artists. I think they make they make a decent amount of their living traveling around to conventions, meeting fans, signing artwork and selling it. It'd be a huge kick in the guts for comic book artists, poster artists, etc. And then you have Happy Feet, which used motion capture, and so did a couple of other standard animated films of that time. But they, the big difference is they chose to be fully animated rather than that hybrid Polar Express Beowulf type of animation. Because the penguins in Happy Feet, there's no question that they're, they're animated penguins. They're not an actor playing a character who's then transformed into this godlike being with animation. But by far the biggest breakthrough in motion capture came in 2006 in Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest and 2007's Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. And that was Davy Jones and his crew on the Flying Dutchman. They were the breakthrough that the movie world had been waiting for. Davy Jones was a visual spectacle. He looked pretty real. And he was by far the best part of those films. Davy Jones and the crew of the Dutchman were visually impressive. They looked realistic. They looked human, minus the octopus and tentacles growing out of Bill Knightley's face. But this was a clear demonstration of where the technology was going, what it could do, and how it could heighten a story. James Cameron was watching and waiting. And it's around this time that he felt the technology had progressed enough that he could finally bring his vision of Avatar and Pandora to life. He had waited for over 10 years for motion capture technology to catch up with what he had envisioned Avatar to look like on the big screen. James Cameron took motion capture to the next level, as he often does whenever he does anything. He often resets the bar. While making Avatar, James Cameron pioneered the virtual camera, which is a new system of shooting a film. The actors had on their suits, which captured body and facial movements. What was different about the virtual camera, as opposed to the slightly older way of shooting motion capture, was that Mr. Cameron could see CG characters on his monitor in real time. So if you've ever seen the behind-the-scenes to Avatar, you can see him directing and walking around with what looks like an iPad or a tablet type of screen, which would allow him to see a rough rendering of the scene they were shooting. It's a much more efficient way to shoot. It cuts down on reshoots and editing and fucking around and wasting time and, and wasting money and time on visual effects that end up not making it into the final film. James Cameron called his motion capture studio The Vault. Unlike Lord of the Rings which had an actor with a suit being captured and rendered at a later date. The virtual camera was a completely different beast altogether. The virtual camera was live as the actors performed the scene. James Cameron really did take this to the next level. This was a first for motion capture, and it paved the way to how motion capture was used in the future. Like I said before, this all cuts down on production time, visual effects, costs and rendering, reshoots. This is a quote by Cameron on the virtual camera. It's a form of creation. It's 2011 and more breakthroughs in motion capture were on the horizon. Steven Spielberg had been impressed by James Cameron's virtual camera, using it on Tintin in 2011. But by far the most impressive breakthrough in motion capture came once again from Andy Serkis in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Andy Serkis' performance as Caesar is nothing short of remarkable. The way he moved and got the ape mannerisms down was perfect. There's some scenes in that movie where he looks like a real animal. He looks like a real chimpanzee. A slightly enhanced chimpanzee, but he looked like a realistic animal nonetheless. 
the way he moved was very ape-like. And this goes back to the uncanny valley and how important movement is. If he had a move like a regular old human, the audience wouldn't buy it. The fact that he put so much time and care into how a ape would move really helps sell the performance. You don't feel like you're looking at an actor in a motion capture suit. You feel like you're looking at a real animal. And that goes for everybody else in that movie too. They must have studied animal movements for hundreds of hours to get that down pat. I think a lot of the other performers in that movie were from Cirque du Soleil because those guys can do some incredible things with their bodies, <clears throat> the way they move, the way they can manipulate their movements to look completely alien is pretty remarkable and it's obviously a priceless skill to have in the film industry. The visual effects in Rise of the Planet of the Apes were incredible and it's one of the first times that the audience forgets that the main character in the film wasn't real. He wasn't just an actor on screen, yes he was a real actor, or should I say the character of Caesar was portrayed by a real actor who was then transformed via motion capture and visual effects. And what's even more remarkable is by the end of the movie, everyone's favourite character in the audience is Caesar, who is in fact a completely digital character. And this digital character is the star of the show. He's one of the few characters in the modern Planet of the Apes movies that stars in all three films. Andy Serkis and Caesar are the star of the show. Rise of the Planet of the Apes was released in 2011. This is only a couple of years after Avatar in 2009. But you could already see a huge development in special effects technology. Avatar in 2009 paved the way for the future of visual effects. But I really think by 2011 and Planet of the Apes really sets a new precedent and a new gold standard of what visual effects can do and what the audience expects, which also may explain the astronomical budgets attached to these films. The MCU was a few years in by now. The films weren't completely over the top with special effects at this point, but The Avengers was one year away, which was what, phase two of Marvel? Midpoint of phase one, I can't really remember. But it gave us a taste of what was possible with motion capture and visual effects and where it was going. Movies were only going to get bigger and better from now on. The visual effects in Avatar are incredible, but every now and then, one of the Navi doesn't quite look as real as some of the others. So compare the effects from the first Rise of the Planet of the Apes and Avatar 2 The Way of Water. It's roughly 10 years between Rise of the Planet of the Apes and The Way of Water. There are scenes in the way of water that you can't tell a completely digital visual effects character from a real actor. There's some scenes where you can't really tell that Stephen Lang wasn't a nine foot tall blue alien. There are shots of the Navi or the recon marines interacting with humans that you can't tell one is completely digital and one is a living breathing actor. Caesar and the other apes are impressive and the scenes with them are so convincing you have to remind yourself you're not watching real animals, you're not watching National Geographic or a David Attenborough documentary. But the most impressive thing is probably how real the hair and the fur looked. Sand, water, hair and fur were the hardest design elements to get right. If you couldn't get the hair looking right, it threw everything off. And you look at just how far technology had come from Peter Jackson's King Kong to Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And then again from Rise of the Planet of the Apes to the way of water where most of the environments are water and the water looks so real you would swear it was filmed in 
the Caribbean or on a tropical destination somewhere, but it's not. It's all completely fake, which once again shows how far the visual effects have come. And again, it's criminal that Andy Serkis wasn't nominated for an Oscar for Gollum, King Kong or for Caesar. I think there were talks in the Oscars years and years ago about having a category for digital actors and performances and their recognition by the Academy, but nothing ever really came of it. It's 10 years later and the Academy Awards haven't changed, and at this point I'd say they never will. Avatar 2 has given us a glimpse into the future of what is possible and where movies are going. It's just recently been nominated for a whole bunch of awards, including several Oscars, it's been nominated for a Screen Actors Guild for Best Performance by a Stunt Ensemble, whatever the fuck that means. Just make an award for Best Motion Capture or Digital Performance already. Because motion capture and digital performances aren't going away anytime soon, they're only going to increase. Andy Serkis played Caesar two more times in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and War of the Planet of the Apes. He also provided the motion capture for 2014's Godzilla, He's also provided motion capture for The Avengers, Age of Ultron, and Star Wars The Force Awakens. It's evolved to a point now where a performer can play any creature regardless of the shape or the amount of arms or legs it has. For all the advancements in motion capture and visual effects technology over the years, one thing hasn't changed, and that is a human being performing the motion capture. Even if that final form on screen is much different to the person performing, and bringing to life that character. When motion capture was on the rise, actors were no doubt a little worried that they were going to be replaced, as is a fear whenever a new industry or technology comes along. But so far, actors haven't been replaced. You still need actors to perform, and motion capture is no different. And that's a good place to leave it. We'll pick that up in the next episode. Next episode will be part two of Avatar, The Way of Water Review. We'll be having a look at more of the trials and tribulations of James Cameron while making the first Avatar before moving on into a review of Avatar The Way of Water. Just before we go, I'd like to share with you a Australian-based paranormal podcast called They Don't Stay Dead, hosted by Alexa and Brittany. Hey, paranormies, I'm Brittany. And I'm Alexa. And we're the hosts of They Don't Stay Dead. We're a paranormal podcast from Australia, and we've made it our mission to share with you all the real-life ghost stories and haunted locations from our home, as well as encounters with supernatural beings and reports of unknown mysteries. From haunted asylums and ghost ships to big cat cryptids and alien encounters, there's something for everyone. We release new episodes every Thursday, and you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to check out our Instagram at they don't stay dead for weekly updates. We get a little bit spooky and a lot silly. So join us for some laughs and a tale of the unknown. Stay spooky, paranormies. Definitely check out Alexa and Brittany if you're into the paranormal and things that go bump into the night and all other manner of spooky and supernatural occurrences. Definitely check them out on the Don't Stay Dead podcast. You can find it on Podbean. Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. That is the end of the show. A big thank you to everyone who listened to the end. If you'd like to support the Truth Tank, there's a couple of things you can do. Head on over to the Facebook and Instagram page, give them a follow and a like. Leave a review if you're enjoying the show. Reviews help the show grow and get found. Download your favorite episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Podbean, Pandora, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. 
tell your friends, tell your family, tell people you work with, help spread the word and get the truth tank out there. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next installment of Avatar The Way of Water. Until then, I'm a tank. This is the truth. May the truth be with you. Oh, <laughs> oh,